Good morning. Last week we finished our series on John the Baptist. And next week we're going to begin a new series on the book of Judges. Just a little something to keep it light as we ease into the new year. But today is a sermon on the scriptures. It's a sermon on God's word. I wanted to take a week uh, to stop, to slow down, and look at God's word and remember what it truly is. But also to ask the question, what's really happening when we read it? Now, if there's any source of knowledge and truth second to the scriptures, I think we can all agree it's the internet. And according to the wisdom of our digital sages, every year on average, 80% of all New Year's resolutions have failed within the first two weeks. I don't know why, but I've always found that to be really, really funny. And so if your New Year's resolutions have already tanked, I'm not laughing at you. I'm just laughing with you. We've all been there. Change is hard. And a couple of weeks ago, we challenged ourselves as a church to read through the Bible together this year. And it wasn't meant to be a New Year's resolution for you, but I get how we can kind of feel that way and we can approach it with that same mindset. But since today is January 14th, we're officially two weeks into this new year, which means maybe you've already fallen off the wagon and you've given up. You got behind, so what's the point now? Or maybe you're moving right along. But maybe at some point over the next 50 weeks, you'll lose some steam. Life will get busy. It won't feel very alive. Or maybe just somewhere halfway through the book of Leviticus. You're going to be tempted to give up and lay it to the side. And you will need to be reminded, and you will need to remember, what is God's word? And what's really happening when you read it? And this sermon is something you can circle back to, if and when that happens, to encourage you along the way. Because that's my goal this morning. It's very simple. To encourage you. And your reading of the scriptures, whether you are reading through the Bible all the way through from start to finish with us, or you're doing your own Bible reading, you're doing your own devotions, your own readings through the lectionary, or maybe you haven't started reading it at all and it's not really a part of your life. Whatever you're doing, whatever it is, wherever you're at, I simply want us to remember the beauty and the gift of God's word to you. To remember what it is, to remember what it does, for it to feel alive and precious and vital to your life, like a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Now, there's a lot of different ways that we could talk about the scriptures and introduce the topic. 
But the way I want to begin to approach it this morning is to think about the scriptures through the topic of change. We all desire change in our lives in all sorts of ways. And now is a time when change is on the mind, perhaps more so than any other time of the year. That sense of being a new year with new beginnings and a fresh start, that can feel like a powerful impulse that awakens our desires for change, unlike any other time of the year. And one of the reasons I think people get frustrated with reading the scriptures is about change. We can get frustrated reading the scriptures because we want to change the wrong thing. And the Bible always has a way of seeming to want to talk about things that don't feel like a priority. It wants to talk about a covenant when you just want to get your car fixed. And so if I ask this morning, where would you like to see change in your life? Where would you like to see change? I imagine that most of us would think about change and the changes we wanted to see through the external realities of our lives. You can see this just in the way that we approach New Year's resolutions. I'm going to work out more, I'm going to lose some weight, a better routine, I'm going to eat better, set a budget, organize my house, work on my marriage, use a planner, read more. That list goes on into infinity. And we think, if I could just change that, life would be different. If I could just change that, life would be better. But then why do we fail so quickly? If life would really be better, then why do we fail so quickly? Our best efforts just become another statistic within two weeks. We desire change, and yet we are just not very good at it. Maybe it's because we don't see the real problems. We focus on the external realities we want to change, but we overlook the internal realities that need to change. And the scriptures can be hard to read because the scriptures challenge what it is that you will think will bring change to your life. And so we get frustrated with what it wants to talk about. Why read the scriptures when I'm just looking for a workout plan? Why read the scriptures when I'm just looking for five steps to better time management in this new year? And the scriptures can be frustrating to us because they want to give us a deeper look to make us ask deeper questions that we don't want to ask. So here's what deeper looks like. Yeah, you could go on a diet. But why is it that I turn to food when I feel anxious and overwhelmed? Or is getting in better shape really going to heal that self-hatred that I feel when I look in the mirror? Will eating clean really address the fact that deep inside I feel so unclean? 
Is the planner really going to fix my inability to say no? And my fear of man that always makes me say yes. Will a better budget really overcome my need to buy stuff because I'm so bored and discontent with my life and dissatisfied? Will more date nights really fix my lustful heart and wandering eyes? And look, doing those things, there's nothing wrong with those things per se. Those can be good things and necessary things. Giving attention to external factors of life certainly won't hurt, but they will not heal. And they will not make you whole. If you want that kind of change, then it requires something altogether different. If you want that kind of change, you have to be remade. Something has to come and make you a new creation. So how is this supposed to help you and encourage you to read the scriptures? It's because when you read the scriptures, you are engaging with something that wants to change you. It doesn't and it will not teach you how to change those external factors of life. To get life comfortably situated, everything around you just how you want. It's concerned about changing you. It helps you see what you can't see. It helps you hear what you can't hear. It helps you find what you never could. It's exactly what Hebrews tells us the scriptures are. That the word of God is living. It's active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It can cut between soul and spirit, joint and marrow, and is able to discern the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Your view of Scripture is just too small. We always struggle with that. And yet when we read what the Bible says about itself, it is something altogether different. It's something that comes to do surgery, to cut, to mend, to heal. And when you read them, you are engaging with something that wants to change you at the deepest core of your being. And why is that? It's because of what the scriptures actually are. What lies at the heart of the scriptures is the voice of God. The scriptures are his words to us. And the voice of God is powerful. And there's nothing that shows the power of God's voice and the power of his words like Genesis 1. And sure, we know it's the creation story. You know what it says. But do you really know what it's telling you? It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and void, and the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the deep. And that reference to the deep is packed with meaning. It's an ancient way of describing chaos. Something disordered and without direction, like a raging ocean. 
something you and I feel all the time on the inside. It's chaos. It's why, the Bible, it's why in the Bible the waters are always a reference to chaos and nothingness. It's why the waters came crashing back down on the Egyptians and why Jesus walked on top of the waters. The Bible begins with what? God himself, by himself, facing the chaos. And out of that chaos, he brings forth order and beauty and life with nothing more than his voice. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And then God speaks and he separates the waters above and the earth below and the dry land appears. He speaks and creates the sun, the moon, and the stars, and trillions upon trillions of galaxies with his voice. He speaks and trees grow and flowers bloom. He speaks and the earth fills with wildlife and beasts. And the Lord saw that it was good. In all of this, from the very beginning, what do we see? God's voice is what calms the chaos. His words bring order and peace and life. Now, you know that story. But do you live by that story? Do you look to God's voice to calm that chaos? Do you allow his voice to bring peace to your heart? Stability to your soul. When life gets crazy, when the chaos comes and the waves crash, what do you do? Oftentimes, I'll tell you what I think we do. We actually live by different creation stories. Pagan stories, in fact. Even when we're not aware of it. How so? Well, in the ancient world, there were a number of different creation stories, stories of our origins, just like we have today. They lived in that same world with all sorts of stories, creation stories that lived right alongside the biblical one, ones that often pulled God's people astray. And the surrounding Mesopotamian nations had their own mythologies about the creation of the world, and one of the most influential in the ancient world was the Babylonian creation story, the story of Marduk and Tiamat. Tiamat was the goddess of salt water and chaos. And she married Ansu, the god of fresh water. And the waters came together. They formed the deep. And together, they gave birth to the gods. But Ansu was annoyed with them, and he planned to kill them. But the other gods found out, and they killed Ansu first. And so the goddess Tiamat became so enraged and so vengeful of her husband's murder that she turned into a hideous sea dragon. But Marduk rose up against her. He fought her. He subdued her. And he killed her, and he subdued the chaos. And then he split her body in two. 
and with it he made the heavens above and the earth below. And out of her remains he fashioned the sun, the moon, and the stars. Marduk triumphed and became the king of all gods, known as the dragon slayer. Now we hear that and think it's just mythological silliness of some ancient enlightened people. But if so, then why do we live by it in stories just like it? How so? Well, what lies at the heart of that creation story? It's that the chaos is calmed through violence. Order will come through overpowering. Peace will come by force. That should sound really familiar to us. A situation rises up. We're confronted with challenging circumstances, and we try to meet it with power and violence and force to subdue it. We try to exert power on the world around us. Overpowering our circumstances, we want to change. Overpowering people, we want to change. Whether it's your wife, your husband, your job, your home. It's approaching life as though peace comes through violence and force. This is all around us. Everywhere. Just step back and look at the rise of influencer influencer accounts. You could just essentially lump all of them together into the same self-empowerment category about you rising up and overcoming your circumstances on your own personal journey to self-actualization and becoming the king of all gods. And their message is all the same. Come on, Marduk, rise up, go out, and slay that Tiamat. But the Christian story tells you how to live differently. In that story, there was no battle between good and evil. In fact, evil didn't even exist. There was no violence. There was only obedience to a voice. There was simply this God who is good making all things good, bringing order to the chaos, bringing life and purpose with the power of his voice, where every word accomplished everything that he intended, and life and peace and beauty and shalom about. So why read the scriptures? Because what else will calm the chaos? What else will bring that order and peace that you long for? Maybe you're so tired because you live like a Babylonian. Trying to fight this world. Trying to fight everything in it where violence and force is at the heart of how you live and your existence in this world. To engage the scriptures is to hear the voice of the chaos calming God who created all things with his words. Truth is we can't stop there though. Because Genesis tells us even more. 
In Genesis 1.27, God says, let us make man in our image. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. God's voice speaks. He speaks purpose over mankind, but this time when God speaks, nothing happened. Nothing happened. God's word doesn't create man like everything else he created. He didn't speak and then they just appeared. Because when God created man, something different happened because his words were also attended by something else. God's word was followed by divine condescension. God speaks and then God comes close. Genesis 2 tells us how close. It tells us that God speaks and then God comes down. He condescends from the heights of heaven down to the dust of the earth and he gets his hands dirty. He sticks his fingers in the dirt and he scoops it up and he forms and he fashions man like an artist creating a masterpiece. But then God comes even closer. Face to face, kind of close. And he breathes life into man's nostrils, face to face. Man breathes in that life, opens his eyes, and the first thing he sees is the face of this God who condescended. This God who came down to have communion and fellowship and intimacy with him. When it comes to man, God's voice is attended by divine condescension. God speaks to man so that God can come close to him. From the very beginning, the Bible roots our existence, our life, our purpose in the voice of God. And it, see, it shows us this marriage between God's words and intimacy with him. Adam and Eve walking and talking with God is telling us how listening to his voice and intimacy with him are inextricably linked together. Which is why when we get to the fall, everything falls apart. Because Adam and Eve listened to a different voice. And when they listened to a different voice, they lost the intimacy that went with it. And as a result, death and chaos enter into this world and break it. And when the gates of Eden slam closed behind Adam and Eve, and they were driven out, they lost his voice, they lost his face, without any hope of ever finding it again in this world. Unless what? Unless God was willing to condescend once again, and come close. The story of the Old Testament is simply the story of God condescending and coming down over and over and over again to speak to his broken people. He comes close to invite them to come close. And just think, this God who is intelligence beyond intelligence, brilliance beyond brilliance, infinity of infinity, 
emotional depth of emotional depth, coming down and talking with his broken, rebellious, know-it-all, fractured, limited, hard-hearted humanity, and still inviting them into relationship with him. It is the story of God's immeasurable condescension, simply based on the fact that he would condescend and humiliate himself by speaking human language. It's baby talk and babble to him. The scriptures are God's baby talk to his beloved. But the Old Testament is also the story of his people disregarding that voice over and over and over again. And they pay no attention to his words. God keeps saying to them, if you just listen to my voice, just listen to my voice, it is life, it is goodness, it is peace, it is purpose. But the people say no. So what does God do? God condescends one more time. And he comes down to the dust of the earth. But this time it was different. This time he doesn't create flesh, he takes on flesh. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The mystery of those verses is profound. And yet it brings so much together. John tells us about the full and complete condescension of God himself in the incarnation. Where God the Son takes on flesh, he humiliates himself by becoming man. And coming down to the dust of the earth to come face to face with his people so that they might know him. And the fact that John calls Jesus the word, oceans of ink have been spilt, trying to explain it. And yet at the same time, it casts a whole new light on the scriptures. How that voice that created all things was Christ. Those hands that dug into the dirt were Christ. That face that Adam saw was Christ. Those words that calmed the chaos were Christ. And he's telling us that from beginning to end, John is saying that Jesus is the word because he's the ultimate message of God. It's what all of his words are about. Jesus is the point of everything that he has said, and the scriptures are given for the sake of knowing him. It's in Jesus that we see God's word and his condescension perfectly woven together. So what's the point of all that? How's that supposed to encourage you in reading the scriptures? It's because God's word is attended by divine condescension. 
The scriptures are a means by which Christ condescends. He comes down and he gets face to face with you. He speaks the baby talk of human language. He breathes his spirit within you. He forms and he fashions you into something new. And he calms the chaos. It's how Christ comes close. And he opens your eyes to see him. And the greatest reason I can offer you is that when you read the scriptures, Jesus is talking to you. And they represent how much he would humiliate himself just to do it. A few years ago, a pastor, a friend of mine, sent me an article written by a man named Ron Suskind. And the article opens like this. In our first year in Washington, our son disappeared. And in the article, Ron tells the story of his son, Owen. Up until his third birthday, Owen was a normal, energetic, rambunctious, chatty little boy full of life. But then suddenly, just before his third birthday, Owen stopped talking. He stopped talking altogether. He went silent. He would cry inconsolably at night. He wouldn't sleep. His wife, Cornelia, stayed home with Owen, and every day Ron would come home to another horror story of what happened that day. Owen stopped being able to even use a sippy cup. He wouldn't even make eye contact anymore. He would wander aimlessly around the house, and at three years old, he would just stare at the wall. It was like he unlearned everything that he had learned to do. Ron and his wife Cornelia were beside themselves trying to figure out what was happening with their son. They took Owen to the doctor and they were told the words regressive autism. And it typically manifests around Owen's age. And it's a disease that's so savage because it gives parents a few normal, joyful years with their child, but then it takes them away, and they literally vanish. Most never regain their speech at all. And Ron says most parents stop watching videos of their children at that age because it's just too painful, because that child is gone. And here they are sitting in the doctor's office, and they were told that their son, who disappeared, was never coming back. And a year later, the one thing they found that Owen loved to do was to watch old Disney movies with his older brother, Walter. The Little Mermaid, Bambi, Aladdin, Beauty and the Beast, Pinocchio, Fantasia, The Works. Owen would watch movie after movie, and he started to rewind certain parts over and over and over again. 
And they would just let him do it because it was the only time he was ever content and focused. And the doctor said just to let him be comfortable. And so they did. And so at night, to spend time with Owen, they'd sit on the couch and watch Disney movies as a family. And one night while watching The Little Mermaid, they got to the part where Ursula sings the song while she's stealing Ariel's voice. And the last line of the song says, it won't cost much, just your voice. And Owen stopped, stopped it, rewound it, and then he played it again. And then again, and again, and again. And they finally just got frustrated and said, Owen, just let it play. But then they realized he was trying to communicate with them. Owen turns and he makes eye contact with Ron for the first time in a year. And he says, Juicervos, Juicervos. So Ron stares at him and says, Just your voice? Is that what you're trying to say? Just your voice? Like in the song? And Owen said, Juicervos, over and over, confirming yes. And they realized that he saw this moment where the mermaid lost her voice in this moment of transformation, just like he did. He was trying to talk to them. And so they all started dancing and yelling and jumping juicer, and yelling Juicervos together. And then when they calmed down, his wife leaned over and whispered in his ear, thank God he's still in there. We've got to find him. And so they go to the doctor and they tell him the news, super excited about this development in their son. But the doctor just splashes cold water on it and says, no. What you saw happen is called echolalia. It's him just echoing the sounds that he hears. But he doesn't know what they mean. Kids in his situation do it all the time, and he probably doesn't even know what he's saying. And so they left completely and utterly dejected. And yet at the same time, Ron and Cornelia felt that it didn't make sense. It really did feel like Owen was trying to reach out to them. But then three years go by, and nothing changes. Owen is almost seven now. And the family was celebrating the birthday of their oldest son, Walter, who was nine. And Ron and Cornelia are cleaning up in the kitchen after the party. And they see Walter in the backyard getting a little bit weepy and upset with his friends. And then they hear the back door slam shut. Owen walks through the door and stops in front of them and looks them dead in the face and says, Walter doesn't want to grow up just like Mowgli and Peter Pan. Ron and Cornelia were dumbfounded. And they just stared at him speechless. They'd never heard their son speak a complex sentence. And then Owen just walks upstairs. And for the next four hours, they tried to figure out what happened. Not just in the speech, but also the insight of what he said about his brother. 
They started to put together, they realized he was using these, these Disney movies as a grid for how to navigate and understand situations and how to communicate. It was something that he could control and rewatch and learn how to speak and to process. And Cornelia just kept saying, how do you get back there? How do you get back there with him? And Ron looked at his wife. She looked at him in silence, and he just sat there staring at her, and he thought of all of the burden that she'd borne taking care of him all of these years. And she just looked back at him, and Ron said the look on her face just seemed to say to him, find a way. Find a way back there. And if I may, I'm just going to read the rest of the story. Soon I'm tiptoeing up the carpeted stairs. Owen's sitting on his bed, flipping through a Disney book. He can't read, of course, but he likes to look at the pictures. My mission is to reach around the banister into his closet and grab his puppet of Iago, the parrot from Aladdin, and one of his favorite characters. He has been doing lots of Iago echolalia lately, easy to identify because the character is voiced by Gilbert Godfrey, who talks like a busted Cousinart. Once Iago's in hand, I gently pull the bedspread from the foot of Owen's bed, onto the floor. He doesn't look up. It takes four minutes for Iago and me to make it safely under the bedspread. Now I crawl, snail slow, along the side of the bed to its midpoint. I freeze here for a minute, trying to figure out my opening line. Four or five sentences dance about, auditioning. Then a thought, be Yago. But what would Yago say? I push the puppet up from the covers. So, Owen, how you doing? I say, doing my best, Gilbert Godfrey. I mean, how does it feel to be you? I can see him turn toward Yago. It's as if he's bumping into an old friend. I'm not happy. I don't have friends. I can't understand what people say. I have not heard this voice, natural and easy with the traditional rhythm of common speech since he was two. I'm talking to my son for the first time in five years. Stay in character. So, Owen, when did you and I become such good friends? When I started watching Aladdin all the time. You made me laugh so much. You're so funny. My mind is racing. Find a snatch of dialogue, anything. One scene I've seen him watch and rewind is when 
Iago tells the, the villain Jafar how he should become Sultan. Back is Iago. Funny? Okay, Owen, so like when I say, um, so you marry the princess and you become the chump husband? Owen makes a gravelly sound like someone trying to clear his throat or find a lower tone. I love the way your foul little mind works. It's a Jafar line. In Jafar's voice, a bit higher pitched, of course, but all there, the faintly British accent, the sinister tone. I'm an evil parrot talking to a Disney villain. And he's talking back. Then I hear a laugh. A joyful little laugh that I have not heard in many years. So why read the scriptures? Because they represent the humiliation of your God just to talk to you. For the glory of Christ and the life of the world, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would come near to us and form and fashion us and make us new. We ask that you would give us ears to hear your voice, eyes that can see your face. We cannot possibly comprehend the condescension and humiliation to come down and speak to us and to tell us of a story about your humiliation and death even on a cross. We are humbled and we ask that you would speak to us by your word. Give us a desire for it and a hunger for it because we experience through it the joy and life that is Jesus Christ, our Lord. We ask all these things in his precious name.